everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend, enjoyed the Super Bowl, and just kind of had a fun time even with everything going on with the pandemic. So a lot of stuff that I want to get into today on the Sam Bissell Podcast. The Critics' Choice Award nominees came out earlier this morning. I'm going to kind of break them all down and what they could potentially mean for award season to come. I'm going to be getting into my spoiler review for WandaVision and a whole lot more. But the first thing that I do want to talk about, and I just kind of referenced it in my opening, is of course the Super Bowl. And again, I hope everyone had a wonderful Super Bowl, even with, again, the pandemic, if you were isolating with your family, just having kind of having a nice, modest, small gathering of people for this year's Super Bowl. It was definitely was really weird to kind of experience it all together in this kind of a way. First off, congratulations to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and all the fans of Tampa Bay and of Tom Brady winning his seventh Super Bowl, to, to Rob Gronkowski winning his fourth, to Antonio Brown, to Leonard Fournette, to the Tampa Bay Buck organization for really kind of going from zero to 100 in one whole calendar year, to really kind of being one of the the, the worst teams in the league, to being the the best team in the league, winning the, winning the biggest championship of them all, winning the title. So congratulations to them. Congratulations to Tom Brady. And what was unfortunately a, a blowout win, 31-9, to holding off a dynamite Kansas City Chief offense to only nine points, no touchdowns. It was the lowest scoring game and the least amount of points that have been scored in a Patrick Mahomes-like Kansas City Chiefs team in any of the three seasons that he's played so far. So again, a huge credit to the Tampa Bay Buck defense as well. Todd Bowles coached an outstanding game. Same with Bruce Arians, who is now the oldest coach to win a Super Bowl. So congratulations to him. And I'm sure we're going to see both of these teams, whether next year or the next few years, we'll see them back in the Super Bowl. But again, unfortunately... With the Super Bowl, it's always kind of up in the air. Is it going to be a a tight matchup? Is it going to be a blowout? Is it going to be a snooze fest? And unfortunately, it fell on the the former side of being more of a snooze fest and and, and a blowout. Unfortunately, <clears throat> excuse me. And on and with this game, there was a lot of hype around. You know, you had. You had Tom Brady, you had Patrick Mahomes, you had all these this high flying offense on both sides of the ball. So <clears throat> it, it was just, I think, something that could have been a, a better game, and unfortunately, just didn't turn out to be that way. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the ratings are for this game. If maybe it started out as a really high number, but as the game went on, when you get to the final accumulated total for the maybe the four hours that this game was on for that maybe it slowly teetered out towards the second half after the Super Bowl halftime show and it seemed like this wasn't really going to be something that Kansas City is normally accustomed to doing of maybe trying to storm a comeback and create an interesting matchup but that just didn't turn out to be the case as the fourth quarter and was really waning on it in the final minutes of this game. But again, I think the fact that you have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning at home for their home fans, again, they didn't have everybody at Raymond James Stadium, but I think for everybody watching, I think it was something special for them to behold. And it wasn't the only thing that I think people were looking forward to with the game, that there's other things that make the Super Bowl really, truly the best event 
of the year, the best televised event of the year, because you have the football game for the sports fans on one of those, and you have it for other people that are maybe just there for the entertainment value, and because of the pop cultureness of the Super Bowl, you have the halftime show, you have the commercials, and I was really looking forward to the halftime show this year, and I know a lot of people loved the weekend this year, and I'm not one of the people that hated this halftime performance, but I'm more on the 50-50 fence. There were some things that I really liked about his his halftime show, and there were just some things I just thought lacked a, a little bit of energy, especially coming off of last year where you had Shakira and J-Lo, and, and that was really a performance that brought a lot of energy, pizzazz, and a lot of fun to it during that Super Bowl, and I just felt like with the weekend, he had a lot of cool techniques and innovations to include in this year's Super Bowl, especially the fact that, again, there were only 22,000 people in that stadium. You didn't have a full house, and you really were, were trying to predicate on the fact that a lot of people were watching at home, so you wanted to make it as intimate as you possibly could. So I loved the production design of it all. I loved kind of the the sets, the LEDs, how we kind of turned it into Vegas a little bit, especially kind of that hallway one shot with, with a steady cam. It looked like kind of like a GoPro camera in a way, and he was kind of in this tight corridor hallway. It was a single shot. He had all these dancers come in. So I really loved that aspect and him going down onto the football field and kind of finishing off with Blinded by the Lights, I thought were real highlights of the of the show. And those are the things that I really enjoyed. It's just that when he was on the, the stage in some part of the stand by himself, I just felt like it lacked a, a little bit of energy. And I do like the fact that he did try to cater it to television audiences instead of playing to the crowd in the stadium and it wanted to make it as intimate as possible. And I think that aspect worked, but at the same time, I think it lacked the energy that I was hoping this halftime show to really be. So I think when it came to the halftime show, didn't hate it, didn't love it. I was in the middle of it. And again, I know a lot of people are really loving this halftime show. And I think there were some aspects that really did work. And I know that the whole thing with the hallway is getting a lot of meme traction now. I wouldn't be surprised if that is one of the biggest memes of the entire 2021. So I think for the weekend, he he accomplished what he needed to accomplish with this, which is create a different type of Super Bowl, something that was going to be new and, and obscure that we haven't seen before, kind of like this entire NFL season that we've gotten. And really for the entire world, it's just been a different experience. And that was predicated both in the entirety of the Super Bowl and also with the Super Bowl halftime show. And we also got that with the commercials, both on the movie television side, which I'll get to in a little bit, but also when he got to a lot of the ads for different uh, properties and different tools and and different objects and, and items that were utilized. You had a lot of things for a lot of cars. You had a Doritos commercial, Cheetos commercial, and you had some of the more obscure ones that were a lot more low market or kind of low small companies that you might not really hear about because Anheuser, Bushweiser, and Pepsi, Coke, they all kind of took a back seat at least to putting out a 30 second spot during the Super Bowl. And you saw more things like Logitech and Chipotle put out a Super Bowl for the very first time. There was this milk commercial that was out there for this this product that I never saw or heard about before ever. So there were different 
different things that you might not expect, but you still kind of got the same star power. I love the the Bruce Springsteen commercial that came out. My two favorites though were the the Edward Scissorhands for I believe it was a Toyota car, and kind of how it's this. A car that you can use your hands free and it's more of like a smart car and I loved how you had Timothy Chalamet perform the son of Edward Scissorhands you had Winona Ryder come back and that kind of how all that kind of played out was really 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 cool and then the one with Amazon where it was Michael B. Jordan playing this sexy version of Alexa and that everyone was trying was utilizing and I thought it was really really funny how they were able to do that commercial so there were some highlights to them, but but nothing that really stood out to me that made me that were, were memorable. My two favorites that I did enjoy were the Edward Scissorhands one and the Alexa commercial. And so the ones that I was really looking forward to though were, were the movie television spots, which I'm really gonna be talking about right now. And over the last few years, even before the pandemic, we hadn't really gotten a whole lot of movie spots to come out because again, in this day and age in digital, where a studio doesn't have to pay five, five and a half, five point six million dollars for multiple television spots and pay upwards of ten to fifteen million dollars for three films to or three projects to advertise about. You can just drop something online and spend money that way or do free marketing in that kind of way on your own accounts to get people to notice it, especially if they're high value properties that you know people are going to gravitate towards and are anticipating seeing something of before it's released. And in the age and midst of the pandemic, it was fairly certain that because we don't know the case of what movie theaters are are going to be, that we don't know what the release schedule is going to be like, not a lot of studios are going to put forth the advertising dollars to market any of their movies because, again, we don't know the nature of what the movie calendar is going to look like let alone in five months from now, let alone two weeks from now. So it was fairly certain that we we weren't going to get a lot of material, but we still did get some commercials that I think people were excited about, especially, and we see this again, I think a lot more in the last few years as well, instead of broadcasting in the, in the, in the Super Bowl actual game, you see broadcasts happen and Super Bowl spots happen at the beginning, but like during the pregame or during the postgame because those ad dollars, those ad windows don't amount to the same as you would for the four quarters of the Super Bowl. So we've seen that over the last few years and we saw that this year as well as we got basically about six Super Bowl ads that for a lot of high profile films and television shows that we're going to be getting in 2021. And the first one that did come out was the one that came out in the very beginning before kickoff. And that was a 30 second spot for Fast 9, which is kind of crazy to think that around this time last year was when we got the first trailer and Universal put out this whole big concert at the Super Bowl when it was in Miami, Florida last year to kind of really push hard and begin a huge opening camp, like opening swang song for the Fast 9 campaign. And obviously COVID happened and Universal pushed this film to April or May actually of 2021. And so to kind of see the first footage a year later for this film is kind of weird, but I think the footage that they put out, I know I've heard some people say that it was just just footage, like why put this film out, why put this spot out there and just kind of give us 
30 seconds of nothing, especially if you haven't given us something in a whole year. And I just think for Universal, for Fast 9, I think this film is going to come out this year. And I just think they wanted to kind of come back in and kind of say, you know, just a reminder. It's it's a reminder spot. This film is coming out. Don't forget about it. Here's all the stuff you love about Fast 9. And for me personally, I dug the trailer. It gave me exactly what I wanted to. You don't get a whole sense of the plot, but if you go back to the first trailer that came out in 2020, it, it kind of revealed a whole lot of what we could potentially be seeing in this film. You got some John Cena action. You got some great car, just action overall some crazy stunts and of course the last three seconds of the trailer where you see that car just get pulled into a whole entire building like it's a magnet and just getting kind of crushed into this moving trailer that's going right across from it on the other side is just fast and furious action had its finest and it looks fun and you see helen mirren seems like she's going to be getting in on a lot of car action you see michelle rodriguez on on motorcycles just kicking people's butts it just looks like a, a whole lot of fun and i think this is just a reminder trailer a minor spot of hey this film's coming out get ready for it it's coming soon and again right now it's coming out for around memorial day weekend however again i wouldn't be surprised if this thing moves to either in the back half of the summer where hopefully we get can start to have movie theaters open back up again and the movie release schedule is able to take some kind of a shape or if it gets moved to sometime maybe in the fall or unfortunately maybe gets moved to next summer if, if Universal can't find a spot to put this film in either July or August. So, so I think they're just kind of waiting to see what they're going to do. And I think for a lot of these spots, other than the Coming to America and Falcon and the Winter Soldier spot and Ryan the Last Dragon, a lot of these other television spots were just kind of feeling it out a little bit, just kind of making sure that people know these films are out there. These films are happening one way or another. And the, the second trailer that we got was for Nobody, which is this Bob Odenkirk, John Wick ripoff, basically. And it just looks like a lot of fun. And this film is supposed to come out on April 2nd. It looks like it will still do that. And so I think for people that love Bob Odenkirk from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, if they're fans of John of the John Wick action, I think this is exactly on in people's wheelhouse. So I don't think this is this film is going to make a lot of money, especially again because of the state of the theaters right now. That this film could just be a fun ride, and I think that's why the, the studios put out a spot for this. I think the one when it comes to movie trailers for theaters that I think that we didn't see, haven't seen any footage yet of whatsoever that really surprised me was Old, which is the new film from M. Night Shyamalan. And it, it looks exactly what you expect an M. Night film to be when first marketing it. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what the premise is. And in this 30 second spot, you can kind of get a feeling for what it is, where it seems like these families go to this beach for a vacation or just a day at the beach and then all of a sudden this crazy stuff happens on this island where it seems like people are getting pregnant uh, children are aging to to their teen years so there's this mystery going on and that's exactly what makes m night so great is the fact that you have no idea what his films are going to be but somehow at least with the old M. Night and with the current M. Night that we're, we have right now is he lends this mystery that is very ominous and I think kind of hooks people of just an interesting 
basic premise that when you watch the film could be a whole lot more that we won't know until we see the movie. So I think for Universal, this is a great starting off point for the marketing campaign for this movie. And again, this is a film that is supposed to come out in the summer and it's supposed to come out more towards July. So again, if, if everything works out for COVID-19 and the pandemic starts to recede at a good point in the summer, then maybe by July, August, we get people to go back into the theater slowly. And Old could be one of those first films that people go see. I, I mean, again, M. Night isn't the name that he was in the 90s when he did Sixth Sense or Unbreakable. And he's certainly not the guy that I think a lot of people were down on when he did films like The Happening or The Last Airbender. I think this is a guy that's slowly ascended once again, doing films like The Visit, Split, Glass. So I think he's in this middle where people like what he's done in this kind of resurgence of his career. I think people will be interested to see what he does with another uh, another original film that he hasn't done since technically split before we realized that it was connected to this unbreakable universe that he created over the last few years. So uh, I'm really looking forward to old. I thought it was the best first impression from the Super Bowl. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what that film is all about. And then we also got a trailer or a 30 second spot for Rye and the Last Dragon, which is about a little less than a month away. So it made sense for Disney, Disney Plus to put out a spot to advertise their next big, their next big feature film that is coming out in 2021. And again, th this trailer to me, it just kept continuing the momentum of what I'm really looking forward to in Ryan the Last Dragon. And since the teaser trailer, I've been surprised and loving everything that I've seen from this movie. And at this point, I'm ready for the movie now. I love the animation looks gorgeous. I love the story. The characters look interesting and look like they're having a lot of fun. So if I can't see this in theaters, I definitely would pay the $30, it seems like, to watch Ryan the Last Dragon on Disney+. And it seems like Disney has cooked up another cool, potential amazing adventure in their animated slate. So Ryan the Last Dragon, I love the Super Bowl spot that came out of there. Uh, I'm going to get to the last trailer that came out during the big and that was the Coming to America sequel uh, 30 second spot that we got and basically it was kind of the rehashing of a lot of the footage that we saw in the last trailer that came out about a week week and a half ago and again I was I was down on this film when the teaser came out at the beginning of the year but the last trailer that came out and, and this spot have gotten me back on the train of looking forward to this film it seems like the cast Eddie Murphy is having a lot of fun with this film we're gonna see more of the home nation that is established in, in this franchise and going to New York at the same time and having Leslie uh, Leslie Jones, Tracy Morgan, Kiki Lane in this. You have James Earl Jones coming back as well. Wesley Snipes is in this as kind of the villain to Eddie Murphy. So I'm really looking forward actually to this film and I was actually texting Jason and he and I were kind of having a conversation of you know coming to America looks good and he said and I agree with him on this is that you know Amazon wouldn't pay Paramount 130 million dollars if the movie was a pile of dog poop basically and I agree with them in the fact that a streaming service again they can they have all the money in the world to pay for these kinds of films but I don't think Amazon will risk it just because it's a high profile name with a whole pro high profile actor which in the end could very well be the case but 
I think they have something on their hands with this movie that I'm very much looking forward to. And the last one that I'm going to obviously talk about, and it came out during the first quarter of the Super Bowl. I think it is the standout of all the commercials that came out, especially from the movie television spots that we got. And that is, of course, the next Marvel Studios Disney Plus show after WandaVision that's coming out on March 19th. And that is Marvel Studios the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which to me, even with WandaVision going on right now, which I'm loving every bit of it, with all of the announcements that Kevin Feige laid out, both in San Diego Comic-Con in 2019 and also at the Disney Investor Day in last year before the year rang out with She-Hulk and Ironheart and Secret Invasion, Armor Wars, Loki, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier was always my most anticipated Disney Plus show to come out from the MCU and the Disney Investors Day trailer that they came out with, I loved it. It got me hooked and I really enjoyed what they were doing. The action looked incredible. It was a great teaser trailer to kind of get people to notice that what this is going to be. And with every great trailer, what makes a great trailer is, of course, if you're always if you're neutral on something and you don't have a lot of anticipation for it, the thing that a trailer is supposed to do is, of course, market the film to you, market the television show to you, and get you more invested, more interested in checking this thing out wherever and whenever it debuts. And I think that is exactly what this Falcon and the Winter Soldier trailer did, not just for me, for a whole lot of people, and for somehow it it raised up my level of, level of anticipation of this television show even further than I thought was possible because this was a great trailer and it all really hit it, it's all really based off of the fact that the chemistry between Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan looks amazing it reminds me of like a lethal weapon rush hour kind of of camaraderie they have with one another where they're busting each other's balls and they're joking around with one another and on some level they hate each other's guts but at the same time deep down they have a level of mutual respect for one another and I think that this is going to continue what we saw not just with the Avengers storyline but also with Captain America the Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War and it's in the characters it's, it's in the style and the feel of this television show and I think for people that maybe are iffy on WandaVision right now I think if you want something that feels like the MCU Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to actually deliver that and Kevin Feige was right when he kind of was promoting this thing at the Disney Investor Day where it's going to be basically a six hour MCU film throughout the next few weeks when this thing debuts and it feels cinematic it has that movie quality to it it has great stars attached and the action lives up to what i think translates from the winter soldier and civil war where it has that great hand-to-hand excuse me hand-to-hand combat fighting techniques and the way that it just feels just just rough and rigged and brutal is awesome and i am so excited for emily van camp and sharon carter because i feel like when she was casted in that role in around like 2013 for the winter soldier she was kind of riding a level of high with revenge on abc and and i liked some of that even though it was a soap opera show I like the first two seasons that came out with it, and Emily Van Camp was a big reason for that. She just knocked it out of the park, and she showed great levels of what she could do as Sharon Carter in Winter Soldier and Civil War. It's just unfortunately she got the short end of the stick, really, 
with those two with those two storylines and I didn't think and I think a lot of other people didn't think we would ever see her again in the MCU and this is really this Falcon and the Winter Soldier is really kind of acting as a pseudo sequel to those two movies along with Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame but giving these supporting characters that were in those Captain America films the spotlight and just those two scenes of Emily Van Camp kind of seem like she's on the run just beating the crap out of those guys in some kind of harbor setting it's just brutal and awesome and I love these kind of one shot takes that we're seeing like we're going to be getting and the action looks so fluid not a lot of jump cuts hopefully because one thing that I've loved from the action movies that we've gotten over the past and it really kind of started with John Wick is that this kind of motion fluid fluidity to these action sequences where you see the whole thing transpiring you see the hand-to-hand combat it's not all this quick action cuts and it's kind of just jogging your brain around like it's scrambled eggs so i'm really looking forward to that the the chemistry between all these characters look great having zemo back as a villain i hope they capitalize more on the character from the comics but also on the brilliant acting of daniel Bruhl because he is a tremendous actor and even though some people might not like what Civil War did with Zemo. I liked I liked what that villain represented in the canon of the MCU at that time period. And I think they're going to translate that over to another level, making him seem more of like the villain, more comic accurate as people know him to be in the comics in this television show. But I love what I saw. And sometimes contemporary music, modern music doesn't doesn't do well in things like this. You want kind of the big epic music. But I love the, the song choice that they had for this. It had this hip hop rap vibe to it. And it just, it fit what they were going for. And it just felt like a, a high action energizing octane time and again when we talk about the marvel cinematic universe and what and how they were going to go about things if we didn't have a pandemic if we didn't have COVID 19 and it was going to be black widow was going to come out first then falcon and the winter soldier then eternals then wandavision i can understand why they did that because i think to kind of start everything out the way that it is right now even though i'm loving wandavision and i think it's a great entry into the mcu after this big layoff but i think if we were in a normal world and we were coming off of Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home to start out with WandaVision, I, at that time period, I don't think it would have been the smart decision. I think Black Widow, Falcon and Winter Soldier being these very spy genre, down-to-earth, action-gritty movies and television shows I think would have been the best way to kind of get people back onto this train getting them acclimated to the MCU once again and then you go into Eternals and then you go into WandaVision a good thing though fortunately for the MCU is that people even without those things right now have gravitated to something as kooky and crazy as WandaVision has been so either way it's worked out great for them but I can understand why the thinking was Let's start out with the character that people know with Black Widow for this new phase and this new era of the MCU, and then work our way kind of introducing Disney Plus with this very spy grounded thriller in a Disney Plus show, and then work our way to the crazy stuff that we want to do moving forward. So just kind of seeing what they're doing with this, I love it. It looks epic and action-packed. And again, it does feel like a movie. And I think what people want to see on Disney Plus in terms of the quality, in terms of the expansive storytelling that we could get with this. And I think this is going to be a great showcase for both 
Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan and just seeing their chemistry together. I mean, we saw it in Civil War. We saw it in Infinity War and towards the end of Endgame. But to kind of see it on full display for six episodes, six hours, is just going to be so fun to watch. The action looks great. It just it looks like fun. And that's all I can really say about it. And again, for me, as this was always my most anticipated MCU show that I was looking forward to, the fact that they was able to ratchet up my expectations to another level is impressive. And I loved it. And what I what also impressed me is the fact that even with 30 seconds, because I was watching the Super Bowl with my dad and he hasn't seen the the full trailer, the two minute trailer that came out, but he saw the 30 second ad that they put out during the Super Bowl. And in just those 30 seconds, he was hooked and loving what he was seeing already. So for both the 30 second spot and the two minute trailer that debuted online, it, it was absolutely incredible. I loved it and I cannot wait for March 19th. And again, the fact that we're basically going to be going from WandaVision having a, a one week off and then going right back into the MCU with Falcon and the Winter Soldier is it's just a treat. And again, hopefully the MCU can kind of keep this momentum going and the fact that if Black Widow does move, then we might have a little bit of a gap between Falcon and Winter Soldier and then Loki. But if Black Widow does keep its May 7th release date, which again, I'm, I'm a little iffy on that happening, we could just go from Falcon to Winter Soldier right into Black Widow and then right into Loki. And, and so the MCU is just, it's off to a great start for this new era. And I think it's only going to get better. And it's not like we're going to have to wait forever for the next MCU installment. It's literally going to be from the finale of WandaVision, which seems like it's going to be on March 5th, to having March 12th off to kind of re recalibrate ourselves. Marvel's probably going to want to end the hype of WandaVision and then start the final push for Falcon and Winter Soldier that whole week. And then we get six weeks of Falcon and Winter Soldier. So it, it, it's a great time to be a Marvel fan. And I think this just showcases the, the greatness of what this can be and the fact that WandaVision is this other crazy thing. And then people can come out and love something that is completely different in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So props to Kevin Feige, props to the showrunner and the directors of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It looks awesome and brutal and exciting and exactly what I wanted that kind of show to be. And it just kind of brings me back to what I loved about both the Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. And again, it feels like its own thing, but it's continuing those tropes in those two films specifically and continuing kind of acting like uh, as like a pseudo sequel to those Captain America films. And again, I'm not talking about the Avengers films, specifically talking about the, those two Cap films that were directed by the Russo brothers. It seems like if you could just watch Winter Soldier, Civil War, and then go right into Falcon and Winter Soldier, it's from the trailers at least, it seems like that is exactly what you can do. And so that excites me and I cannot wait to see what they do with these six episodes. And really overall, guys, again, the, the Super Bowl game itself, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot to look forward to, unfortunately. The Super Bowl halftime show, some people didn't like it, some people loved it. Again, I'm 50-50 on it, but I think overall, for what the Super Bowl did, it had its high points, it had its low points. And I think for a lot of people, there were a lot of things to, to love about it. So I'm gonna ask you guys in the Twitter poll, what did you think about the Super Bowl? What was your favorite part of the Super Bowl? Was it the halftime show? Was it the game? Which I don't think they would get a lot of response about the game. Was it the the, the 
ad commercials? Was it the movie commercials? What was your favorite part? And also, I'll put out another Twitter poll asking you what your favorite movie television spot or overall TV movie television spot was. Was it Fast 9? Was it Old? Was it Ryan the Last Dragon coming to America? Falcon and Winter Soldier? What was it? Let me know what you thought about it down below and leave your thoughts. And then speaking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I'm going to be now doing my annual spoiler review for WandaVision Episode 5. And there is a lot to unpack with this episode. So again, as I do every single week, I will make sure in the description of this episode, I put on the timeline of which, uh, how long this uh, this spoiler review will run for. So you can either go back to what we just talked about in the Super Bowl, or you can go on to the next thing that we will talk about, which is the Critics' Choice Award nomination. So if you don't, if you haven't seen the WandaVision episode yet, the, the fifth episode, just make sure you pause this right now and then move on to the Critics' Choice nominations. And again, in the description of this episode, as I usually do, I will put in the runtime for how long the spoiler review will run until, so you can just go on to the next segment of this podcast. So again, you have been warned if you have not watched the fifth episode of WandaVision, this is your final warning. Move on to the next segment, and then you can come back to this segment and listen to it in its entirety and be part of the conversation. So again, Right now, we are beginning in three, two, one. Now, we are in spoiler territory for WandaVision. And man, oh man, what an episode. And again, with the with the last two weeks, it's been very hard to talk about the, the episodes overall because really from the beginning, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about in terms of spoiling things that with the last, the first three episodes, you can kind of talk a little bit about the, the episodes a little bit more in, intricately within the non-spoiler reviews because it was a lot more based on the sitcoms. And again, you, you had some spoiler things with the mystery. We had no idea really what was going on. The last two episodes really have gone into this show on such a spoiler territory that it, it becomes very, you have to be very evasive of how you talk about things, especially on the day of the episode because not a lot of people have seen it at that particular moment in time. But now I am gonna be talking about it and, and Man, the, the the ending of this episode alone has huge implications for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, and I, honestly, I'm just going to start off with it right off the bat. And that is, of course, Pietro Maximoff is back. However, it is not the Pietro Maximoff that you think you are going to see. It's not the, Evan, the Aaron Taylor Johnson Pietro. It is the X-Men Evan Peters Pietro that we get. And that is, again, has huge implications for what we are going to get. And basically what that translates to is multiverse. And basically, since even before WandaVision was released, from Kevin, when Kevin Feige said that WandaVision was going to connect to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, we knew on some level WandaVision had to deal in the multiverse in some way, shape, or fashion. And throughout the episode, we kind of get hints from Monica and Darcy and Jimmy that 
what Wanda is creating is real. It's legit. It's not like when you go into the bubble, you see the normal Westview. You see this the, the, in the in terms of this episode. You see this '80s style world within the 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 hex, as Darcy calls it, in in Westview. So it really starts to showcase that what Wanda's creating is an alternative reality. And when you create alternative realities, you start to create different sections of the multiverse. And how is that really going to creep in and creep out? And what are the consequences? And I think at the end of episode five, we start to see one of those consequences of another Pietro appearing before our very eyes. And the fact that Marvel did one of its biggest flexes ever right out of the gate, basically, of signaling, yeah, we have 20th Century Studios now, we have Fox, and we're just basically going to take one of those characters and one of those actors that had a great response in those last few X-Men movies and just pluck them right into our Marvel Cinematic Universe. And again, it's only... Uh, in terms of this episode, it's only like a two-minute can- two-minute appearance, but I would suspect that, especially in next week's episode, which will probably deal with the '90s, probably have a lot of uh, Full House references. If I had to guess, that Evan Peters' character will have a big presence to play in the next few episodes and potentially in the MCU going forward. And for Evan Peters to come into here, it's just the first example of a landmark decision that could come down the line where we could be getting so many different characters that we never thought we could potentially get in X in the universe all around. It leaves open the possibilities and the theories that people have been doing since this episode came out of. Will we get a Patrick Stewart? Will we get an Ian McKellen Magneto in this? Will we get a Hugh Jackman Logan? And I'm naming a lot of mutants right now. And because Pietro is coming into this and it's Evan Peters, that technically he is a mutant. So maybe WandaVision could be dealing with the mutants in some kind of way, shape, or form. Another thing is this kind of leads evidence to what we've been hearing about Spider-Man 3, where we could be dealing with the multiverse in a way where we see these legacy villains and these legacy characters from other iterations of Spider-Man's filmography come back in the form of Alfred Molina as Doc Ock or Jamie Foxx's Electro, or if the rumors are to be believed that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield come back as their altered potential versions of Spider-Man. So that could be a potentiality as well And there's another side to this as well, where we this is a version of Pietro, but it might not be the version that we as the audience know. And for WandaVision to do what it's done, and I have to give a huge credit to the to the writers' room and to to Jack Schaefer, the showrunner of WandaVision. There's a lot of meta references within this show that tie in so well to the questions that are asked in the universe. So it's kind of like breaking the fourth wall without it being so obvious. And it's worked so incredibly well. And you see it a lot between the exchanges of Darcy and Jimmy and Monica, especially in this episode where you start to kind of see the blending of the the alt reality of, of Westview and the actual outside world. Instead of focusing on one or the other, we're starting to kind of see it blend. And I think it did a really good job this episode of doing that. But there's a lot of meta references of, of the, oh, I'm calling this the, 
the hex or oh are we able to uh, what 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 is the hex or, or or is vision alive or what who are these kids or kind of talking about well wanda could have destroyed thanos when they talk about the the the, the abilities of wanda and how far she can push them and saying well oh well captain marvel could have beaten thanos there's a lot of meta references that address the of what the audiences are always kind of arguing about but it makes sense in universe in a way that they would be having these conversations as well. And so towards the end, when Darcy sees that Pietro is a part of this as well, she blurts out as everyone else is kind of asking, did Wanda somehow recast Pietro in this in this alternate reality since in the MCU, in terms of the, the normal timeline, the Pietro Maximoff that we know from the MCU from Age of Ultron, played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, is dead. He's gone. He's, he's, he's been gone for many, many years. And so both in the universe, it asks these questions at the same time, asking it to us, the audience members of what what how we're going to try to figure this out i'm sure those are going to be questions and answers that will be founded in the next few episodes so the way that this show is so meta but does it in a way that it's not it's direct to us but at the same time is it's indirectly involved in the universe i just think is is very slick very smart and a very big credit to the writers and it hasn't gotten old for, for me yet and I love what they've been doing with it so far. So I, I think that we could be getting in a Pietro that could potentially be a different version of him. Even though it's Evan Peters, this might be a version that we have never seen before. Now we know him as a, as a Quicksilver, but that might not be the Quicksilver that they are putting in here. And I think that's all going to be addressed. I definitely think next week we're going to get this addressed a lot more and the following weeks afterwards as well. So the whole Pietro recasting and Evan Peters coming in, that is just a huge flex, a huge bombshell that I think people were wondering was going to happen because there were rumors that Evan Peters was going to be a part of this, but nobody knew who he was playing. And there were always the rumors that he could show up as Quicksilver. It would make sense. But would that actually happen? And lo and behold, that actually did happen. And another question that comes up with this is the fact that is this well, kind of two questions that it poses. Because these these two questions were posed in interviews that both Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany have done in the last few weeks with the press tour for WandaVision. And with Paul Bettany, he talked to Lights, Camera, Barstool, and he talked to a lot of other outlets as well, saying that without disclosing the, the person's name, that he worked with an actor that he's always wanted to work with but never did before working on this show. And then with Elizabeth Olsen, just last week before this episode aired, she got a question asking if WandaVision would have a cameo-like appearance from somebody that would be on the same level as like the Luke Skywalker cameo in the season two finale of The Mandalorian, which blew everybody's minds. It was a huge cultural moment in pop culture, in fandom that nobody saw coming and kind of swept the world to end 2020 going into 2021. So there were a lot of questions about what could that potentially be and obviously there's a lot more theorizing of who could potentially be that so with these two scenarios my mind comes into play is this the 
Paul Bettany, I've never worked with Evan Peters before, and now I get to work with him for a few episodes, and, and I've, I love working with him. He's a great actor, because I can see that being the case if that's what Paul Bettany's talking about, because I don't think Evan Peters is just going to appear in the last few minutes of the, the fifth episode, and that's it. I think he'll be around for the next few, and I could definitely see that being more of what Paul Bettany was talking about than what Elizabeth Olsen was saying of this being kind of on that Luke Skywalker level, because even though this is, this was a huge cameo, this was a huge wall-breaking thing that Marvel did, it's not on that level, because I think you're going to have people like oh, my brother and I, we, were, we knew who it was, but for my mom and for my dad, and I think for a lot of people, they were asking... Who is who is that? Who like who is he? What's he doing here? Like I thought he was a part of another universe. So I think the thing with the Luke Skywalker cameo is that I think everybody knew. Oh wow, they got Luke Skywalker. It's a universal notice of what Luke Skywalker represents. And, and I think for Elizabeth Olsen to say that there's going to be a Luke Skywalker cameo, I think that there carries more weight to that than than she realized because. Again, it's a cool cameo, but there's so much underneath it when you say that we're gonna have another cameo like that. Because in the in the fandom, Evan Peters is a huge drop, but I don't think it's on the level of a Luke Skywalker cameo. So it's I think it's either I don't think it's it's the cameo appearance that Elizabeth Olsen was caught talking about, but I do think that it's the second in being that this could be who Paul Bettany was talking about because at least from when I can recollect I haven't seen Paul Bettany work with Evan Peters before and Evan Peters is a very good actor he's done some really good things over the last few years from American Horror Story to obviously his work as Quicksilver in the the X-Men franchise even with Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix those weren't good movies but he was a standout in in both of those especially his debut in X-Men Days of Futures Past which is a great film and he was really kind of a main standout of that film, only just appearing in maybe 10 minutes overall of footage in that movie. So he's a really good actor. So I could definitely see that being who Paul Bettany is potentially talking about. So there's definitely a lot of different scenarios that come into play with that Quicksilver cameo and what it has potentially the ramifications for moving forward. So that was really kind of the whole big talk of the conversation when it comes to the the, the Pietro thing. And that's not even the only thing that came out of that of that episode. There was so much other stuff that happened. One another thing was the fact that we really get our full introduction to both the Maximoff twins of Tommy and Billy and the fact that they're not just babies anymore. Throughout the episode, they progress from babies to five-year-olds to 10-year-olds. And we kind of, it continues the the sitcom level of getting these homages paid to, especially from the 80s, uh, of a family ties where where it's a comedy, but at the same time, it mixes in a lot of sentimental, emotional drama that carries weight with these families and I think that you see that with Billy and Tommy and the fact that they have a dog who they named Sparky. Unfortunately, the dog dies and Wanda starts to really get attached to these kids and explain to them what it means to, to be young and not to grow old and literally not grow old and to to not escape pain. And she, this episode really, I think, focused on the fact that it really this is Wanda's doing and we're all kind of experiencing 
Wanda shielding away from her grief and wanting to just kind of put that all to bed. And this episode really puts a focus on that. And you see with her talking to her kids, giving her her life lessons, but also you see it with with Vision and the fact that in this episode, Vision really starts to investigate what is going on with Westview. Because again, in the last few episodes, especially in at the end of episode three and the end of episode four, Vision starts to question this reality that he's involved in. And in episode five, he really just starts to really full on investigate that something, something's not right here. Like Wanda isn't telling me everything. Nothing is as it seems. And the biggest indication of that is when he's in his office, he is kind of putting together all these computers for the first time. He gets an email from S.W.O.R.D. and then he uses his powers to undo one of Wanda's victims in Westview. And you kind of see this untethered human being who's under this mind control and is just trying to get out. So for Vision, he is he realizes that Wanda's doing something to this. And, and the end of this episode is it's just so powerful before we get everything with, with Pietro at the very end, the, the, the ending of this where Wanda's trying to kind of end the episode, roll through the credits, but Vision isn't having it. And they have this huge argument that comes to blows where in the trailers, it seems like Wanda and Vision were about to fight. That's, that's the scene that we get in this episode. And we kind of start to see the cracks of this marriage fall apart and it's so tragic and this is the scene to me where Paul Bettany really shines and so does Elizabeth Olsen where they've just been able to to go on and off with these personalities where every single episode they've had to put on these other personalities within the sitcom world but then come back to what we notice know them to be the MCU of their normal kind of personas and we kind of got that with Wanda where when Monica wanted to kind of put in an 80s drone into Westview, Wanda actually goes out of the Westview bubble and we see her in her full Scarlet Witch attire for the first time since Endgame, really. And we kind of see Wanda Maximoff for the first time in this show and she has the accent again. So for Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen, there's just kind of have all these facades to these characters in this show. I think was really highlighted in this episode for the acting challenge that they took on with this show. And I think we're going to see more of that continue in the episodes to come. But it all really came to a blow in those final few minutes of the episode where where Vision is asking, like, what's outside of this of this town? Like, why won't you let me go? You can't control all these people. And throughout the episode, we've gotten throughout... Throughout this show, really, we've got indications that Wanda is in control of this, that Wanda's the one that is imposing all of this. And episode four kind of ended on it with Monica saying, oh, it, this is all Wanda. Wanda is controlling what everyone is seeing. And that theory continues in this episode. However, at the same time, Monica, Darcy, they, they begin to kind of question, well, maybe Wanda isn't doing all of this. And even Wanda says that I'm not controlling all this. I, do you think I'm controlling the people that are going to the grocery store or the people that are getting their mail? And so I, it, to me, it it's, it's evidence that Wanda is in control of what's happening, but she's really in control of everything that's going on in her family. That maybe she's not controlling all 
all of the sitcom world, but she's really getting help. Like I kind of thought was happening since the beginning that Wanda is maybe in, in cahoots of what's going on and she's not resisting what's happening, but somebody else is in control of everything and really the the the, the, the culprit of this entire Westview bubble. And I think that's going to be addressed further in these episodes to, to come. So there was a lot to really kind of to dissect here. And of course, I think the, the person that you go to, and I think it further evidenced in this episode is that Catherine Hans Agnes has a lot more to play in this show. And I think we realize that she's obviously more than just a nosy neighbor, but you wonder, is she the, is she an antagonist? Or is she somebody that is mind controlled by Wanda? Or maybe she's a victim because everyone else in that town is under the influence. You see it in normal. Wanda, not Wanda, well, when Vision kind of unhooks his mind from everything going on, he's freaking out. Like it's two alternate personalities. And that seems to be what's happening in all of Westview, except for Agnes. Agnes seems to be the one, and maybe even Herb, if you kind of see what happens at the end of episode three, but Agnes seems to have a self-awareness of what's going on, and that's evidenced in the beginning of this episode when Vision is kind of very, has a little bit of anxiety that Agnes is going to hold the babies, and then for a second, it seems like Agnes stops the sitcom reality that's going on and asks Wanda if they want to take it from the top like of the episode and kind of repeat what just happened. So it seems like she has a lot of self-awareness and she asks a lot of questions in episode three about, about Geraldine. She's not from here. She has no home, no family. She just got here a few days ago. She's asking all these questions. So it seems like she has a lot more self-awareness of what is really happening in this town than a lot of other people. And at one point, she might be in cohorts with Wanda on this, but at the same time, she seems terrified of Wanda. So I think you don't cast Catherine Hahn in a small role like this and not have her be a big part of what's to come. I think she is, it it, it could be the villain. She could be an anti-hero. She could be playing Agatha Agatha Harkness from the comic books. So I definitely believe that that Catherine Hahn has a bigger part to play. And she could be the reason that Pietro comes back because when you see, when Vision and Wanda are kind of confronting one another and Vision's trying to ask Wanda, why are you doing this? What's going on? I don't know who I am. It, it seems like Wanda is finally going to break and explain to Vision what is really going on as she can't control everything. And then the doorbell rings and even Wanda says, that's not me. Because when when Vision and Wanda begin the argument, Vision's saying, well, Wanda's saying, let's go to bed. Let's not worry about this. And then Vision's saying, well, are you going to say, let's watch TV, let's go to bed, and you're going to change everything on me? And that's when they get into the confrontation. And so Wanda, again, it looks like she's about to be on her breaking point in terms of just spilling the beans. And then Pietro comes into play, and and the shock and and confusion on, on Wanda's face I think says it all in the fact that that she didn't have anything to do with with Pietro showing up there because she just looks she she doesn't look terrified but she just looks at all and like oh, are you're my brother and then the whole episode is again dealing with death and grief and not being able to bring anybody back and again she didn't bring back her actual brother her brother's still dead but she somehow this other version of Pietro showed up so it just goes to show is Wanda really in 
control of everything or is she just in control of a little faction of it specifically doing with with vision and, and the family because i think what also this episode confirmed is the fact that in episode four when we see a quick shot of a vision dead we wonder was that just a figment of wanda's imagination or, or is vision in this world legitimately dead and and all the stuff that we're seeing kind of live and, and lively and reanimated is just a dead corpse flying around everywhere and it seemed like to confirm at the beginning of this episode with sword that wanda did take vision's body from their laboratory and took it with her so it seems to confirm that wanda did wanda's sleeping with a dead corpse right now so i think all these again there's so many small answers but there's so many more questions to come with this show and I just love the mystery box of it all. And again, I know people think it's a little slow at this point. And I, again, I, I think this is just the beauty of Marvel and that they're trying something different. We're going to get something totally original or similar with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But with WandaVision, we're getting something we haven't gotten before. And this episode, again, just continued to, to kind of elevate the show to another level and just kind of kept it is starting to have it on this very even keeled path that I think we're going to be on in these next few episodes to come. So, so I'm very, very excited of what we're going to see. Uh, I love this episode and I love the eighties aspect to it, that the family ties, the opening sequence I thought was the best with, with kind of the family running around very family times at family ties esque with, with the kids and, 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 and the dog and, 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 and the very eighties aesthetics to it. I loved it. So I'm very excited to see where this show goes from here and what we could finally get because again we only have two more episodes left with the sitcom homages and especially since we kind of got episode four where it showed the other side of things going on with jimmy monica and darcy again now we're going to get both of these sides together and again i loved how they went back to the sitcom world and then went back to the real world and we're getting that blend moving forward and i think with we have the we have the 90s left and we have the 2000s and so that'll leave really two episodes for what Kevin Feige said of this epic MCU level event that we're going to get with WandaVision where those I think could be true 40 to 50 minute episodes that have all this crazy action going on so I think we have two more episodes I think episode six is going to be major because it seems like that's going to be the Halloween episode where we get Vision and, and Wanda in their comic book attire that we've seen in the trailers and i think if that's any indication it could lead to some revelations for vision specifically and then i'm really curious to see what they do with the with the modern family episode of this kind of mockumentary in the 2000s so we're, we're nearing the end of i think the sitcom world in these next two episodes and then the final two is just going to be this some kind of craziness <laughs> and and again i really don't have any idea how this show is going to end or what's going to happen moving forward I, other than pietro being in episode six and having billy and tommy i don't know what else could happen and and the 90s sounds like it's going to be a mixture of all of, of full house and malcolm in the middle so these boys 
are in their early teens or, 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 or like 10, 11 in episode five? Does that mean they're teenagers by episode six? And then are they young adults by episode seven? So th- there's a lot of questions to be answered. Now. And this really is, I think, leading towards a very tragic ending to the show. What started out, and again, they said it, what started out as hopeful in 50s, 60s era sitcom, it was very hopeful, very energetic. Could be something could become something very tragic by the end of this in episode eight and nine. So I'm really excited on the, this road that we're traveling with WandaVision. It just keeps getting better and better, and we'll see what happens. But I loved th- this episode, great episode, and we'll see where episode six takes us. And that's gonna do it for this spoiler review for WandaVision. So we hit around the uh, one hour mark with the end of our spoiler discussion. So what did you guys think about the episode of WandaVision? Spoilers, all spoilers. Let me know what you thought. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. All spoilers, you can spoil away in the comment section on this one. So now I'm going to move on. And for those that are just joining us again, if you haven't seen our spoiler discussion, again, welcome back. Right now, 59 minutes into the podcast, we still have two more things to talk about. And again, if you have not seen the WandaVision episode and you want to watch it and you don't want to get spoiled, watch it and then come back. And again, in the comments description part of this podcast, of this episode, you can go in, see where we talk about it. And you can join our conversation of what I thought about WandaVision. So if you haven't seen it yet, don't worry. You can go back and listen to it when you have a chance. So now we're going to be talking about the Critics' Choice nominations that came out earlier today. And again, with the Critics' Choice Awards, it's not a – the winners don't give usually a big indication of where – the, the Academy is going to look forward, look towards, but it's just another voting body of kind of gauging the temperature of the room, kind of like the Hollywood Forum Press of w- what the true contenders are going to be. And it really kind of was the same as last week with the with the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards. And this today, Mank led with 12 nominations and many categories. Surprise for number two in terms of, of leading nominations, Minari from Lisa Isaac Chung that was really snubbed from the Golden Globes, but kind of had a little bit of a resurgence the following day with the, with the SAG Awards, has 10 nominations, including Best Picture one. Excuse me, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom has eight nominations, ranking for third. Coming in at fourth was News of the World with seven. With six nominations, we had about five films coming in in that range. We had The Five Bloods, Nomadland, One Night Miami, Promising a Woman, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. So five films tied with six nominations. Tied with five nominations was Sound of Metal and Tenet. The Father came in with four nominations. So a lot to look forward to with the the Critics' Choice Awards. And again, I like I like it because I consider myself to be a critic and hopefully one day look to join the Critics' Choice Awards. And I think they gave a great indication of what critics really did like in the year of 2020, in a year that, again, even though there weren't a lot of big blockbusters that came out, there were still a lot of great films overall with, with artistic choices that I think people really came to love, even if they were just confined to their homes to watch a lot of these films. But starting it off, kind of kicking off the round of nominations, I'm not going to get through all of them. I'm just going to get through the big ones, kind of ending it with best adapted screenplay. 
And then with a lot of the other ones, I'll kind of give a big picture of what I think will be big winners for tonight and what this means for the Oscars. But I'm just going to go through from best picture to best screenplay, the screenplay categories. I'll give the nomination. So kicking it all off with the big award of the night, best picture. There were 10 nominees in this category. So a lot to look forward to. And I'll read off the list here. And the nominees for best picture are The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, Minari, News of the World, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. And Netflix really had a big, big, big showing at this, at the Critics' Choice Awards today, coming up with a whopping 72 nominations. 46 came on film and 26 came on the television side, which was announced a few weeks ago. So uh, a big list. And again, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the list that we are going to see come Oscar nomination morning on March 15th. The only two that got snubbed in this category, which I think is going to hurt one film particularly, it was Judas and the Black Messiah and The Father. And for Judas and the Black Messiah to kind of lose out on uh, a SAG Acting Ensemble nomination and didn't get a uh, Best Picture nomination at the Globes, doesn't seem like it's going to get anything at the BAFTAs. For best picture for Judas and the Black Messiah, it's troubling. And the fact that they didn't get on this list, again, I know that Judas and the Black Messiah, the film, didn't really start appearing and getting word out there till mid-January. So I, I think for for Warner Brothers, for this film, I think hopefully they got to pray that maybe Daniel Kaluuya starts to get a, a couple of wins in it and this, if the film's coming out this week and we'll talk about that a little later on in the week but it's supposed to come out on Friday on HBO Max so maybe for the Academy voters the buzz of the next month or so will get people to notice the film and could catapult it to a Best Picture nomination. For The Father it was always kind of a, a fringe nomination for me I think between Sound of Metal and The Father and Judas, that's where it could really kind of land. I don't think we're going to get 10 overall nominations. I think, again, Sound of Metal could be that one that gets nixed. Same thing with News of the World. I think that one could kind of be a fringe one as well. Unfortunately for Tom Hanks, it's always his films that could come up either way. And The Five Bloods might not be safe as well. It's gotten some love, but nothing for the Golden Globes. But... It came through with the SAG Awards as well. So it really had a big resurgence a day later. So the Five Bloods could show up big here as well. So again, I, I think there are a lot of great contenders here. And I think for a lot of these awards, they really kind of go with, with a big list of nominations. So you really kind of see the big overall tent of the of the contenders for these categories. And the fact that they for the acting categories, they have around six nominations instead of five kind of, I think, gives you a, a, an, a idea of that fringe contender that could either get in or be shut out from their respective categories. And we're going to see it with Best Actor. And starting off the list, the nominees for this category are Ben Affleck for The Way Back, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Tom Hanks for News of the World, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Delroy Lando for The Five Bloods, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Steven Yen for Minari. And that's basically the contenders, the series contenders for Best Actor for 
an Oscar nomination. Now, I love seeing Ben Affleck on this list. I, I think thought he gave his best performance to date in The Way Back, and I would love to see him get more Oscar love, but just getting love here, I think, is really all he's going to get. He always seems to kind of be... He seems to be on that on that potential contender, but fringe contender. So I don't think he's going to get a nomination Oscar morning. But I think the fact that the critics are nominating him, I, I think it is, is a win for Warner Brothers and for him on this role. I think Riz Ahmed, Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, those are the three that I think will be getting a nomination come Oscar morning. Uh, Tom Hanks, again, I, I don't think he's going to be on this list of the five when it comes to March 15th. And it's going to be a battle because, again, Delroy Lindo hasn't been getting a lot of love, but he got some love here. So this could continue that boost for him to get that five slot. And same thing with Gary Oldman and Steven Yen. Again, I think for those are the two that are competing for that four and five spot right now. And we'll see where it goes. But it's it's those final three, Delroy Lindo, Gary Oldman, Steven Yen, to keep a real true eye out for when it comes to competing because one of those three are going to be shut out and be left out of the conversation. And I think if it's either Steven Yeun or Delroy Lindo, I think there's going to be some controversy with a lot of people and not a lot of happy faces if one of those two are shut out. Or, or if both of those are shut out, we get Tom Hanks and, and Gary Oldman. As much as I think Gary Oldman did a great job in, in Mank, I thought Delroy Lindo and Steven Yeun did a better job. So I think they would rather be the ones to compete in this category and so moving on now to best actress in a leading role the nominees are viola davis for ma rainey's black bottom andrea day for the united states versus billy holiday sydney flanagan for never rarely sometimes always vanessa kirby for pieces of a woman francis mcdermott for nomadland carrie mulligan for promising young woman and zendaya for malcolm and marie and again this is other than maybe Sydney Flanagan, these are the nominees that are competing for best actor, actress nomination at the Academy Awards this year. And it's going to come down to Andrea Day and Zendaya fighting for that five spot, along with along with Sophia Loren for the, the life ahead. And so I think Viola Davis is a lock. I think Vanessa Kirby is, is in. Francis McDermott, Carrie Mulligan, those are your four. And for Zendaya, again, I'm going to have a review from Malcolm and Marie out in the next few days, but I thought she was great. She was amazing. I thought John David Washington was a little bit stronger and had a little bit more to chew on with his role. That's not to take anything away from Zendaya. She was great, but I just don't think Malcolm and Marie has a lot of buzz going for it right now. And even though both of those performances are great, I don't think it's going to be enough for her to get that nomination. I think it's going to go to Andrea Day, but it is going to be those two fighting it out for that fifth spot, I believe. And again, the the four of Viola Davis, Vanessa Kirby, Francis McDermott, Carrie Mulligan, those are the four that are, are going to be in, in my opinion. And it just seems like that has been the case from the Globes to the, the, the Screen Actors Guild nominations. That just, it seems like those four ladies are have built up enough momentum that I think they will be chosen in those four slots. If I had to pick a winner, I would choose Frances McDermott again, I think as an early front runner, she's just been crushing it. And the same thing with Best Actor, I would still give it to Chadwick Boseman at this moment in time, but Riz Ahmed to me is nipping at his heels. So again, the winners don't really give an indication of who will potentially win this thing, but 
I think again it'll carry momentum forward, give a gauge and feeling of the room for what we could get with the the guilds and overall with the Academy Award. So Chadwick Boseman would be my front runner right now to win this award for Best Actor. Same thing with Frances McDermott for Best Actress. Now to move on to Best Supporting Actor, the nominees are Chadwick Boseman for The Five Bloods. Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of Chicago 7, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, Bill Murray for On the Rocks, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami, and Paul Reese for The Sound of Metal. So, again, so I guess not a surprise, but no surprise really in not seeing Jared Leto's name on here after having a huge surge in his award season favor last week, gaining both a Golden Globe nomination and a SAG nomination and Best Supporting Actor, but nothing for him here. It seems like Bill Murray took his name on this list. And and again, I think the four that are in the race right now is Chadwick, Sasha, Daniel, and Leslie Odom Jr. Those are the four that I have in my top four right now. And Bill Murray is a little bit more down on my list for Best Supporting Actor, but to me, Paul Reese is, is my fifth guy on the list but again with Jared Leto having a big surge it's between him and 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 Reese for that fifth slot in best supporting actor the person that I would give to win this thing right now again I was talking with it to Jason last week with everything right now I think Leslie Odom Jr. is the perennial frontrunner right now however I think give it a month or so Again, especially with Judas coming out this week for everybody to see on HBO Max and in theaters, I think Daniel Kaluuya could very easily take that spot and become the front runner to win the the award for Best Supporting Actor. So I would still have Leslie Odom Jr. as my front runner here, but again, I could see Daniel Kaluuya coming up and winning that award. So moving on now to Best Supporting Actress in a role the nominees are Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film. Ellen Burstein for Pieces of a Woman, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman for The Father, Amanda Seyfried for Mank, and Yoo Jung Yoon for Minari. And again, these are all the competitors that, I'll, again, are in my five to six spot for Best Supporting Actress. And I think this, if anything, solidifies that Glenn Close is a top five candidate to get a Oscar nomination. Again, the fact that she's got a Globe nom, a SAG nom, and a Critics, a Critics nomination. Again, the Critics' Choice Awards are, are, are from the critics that review these films, and Hillbilly LG did not get great reviews overall, even for Glenn Close and Amy Adams. And the fact that Glenn Close got this nomination... I think to me just signals that if she can get a nomination at the Critics' Choice Awards, she's probably a good bet to maybe get a nomination in Best Supporting Actress come Oscar nomination morning on March 15th. So this is a big win for her. And I think that Ellen Bernstein is the one that's on the outside looking in in this, in this category in terms of the, the five same thing with Amanda Seyfried. Again, the fact that she didn't get a gold, not a Golden Globe, but a SAG nomination, I think hurts her. And the fact that the Screen Actors Guild, SAG Astra, has a huge presence when it comes to Academy members, when it comes to crossing over into one another, having influence. The fact that she didn't get a nomination at for the SAG Award is it could spell doom for her in terms of getting an Oscar nomination in the coming month. For me to win this award, 
Also, uh, real quick, shout out to Olivia Coleman, who with this award and her nomination for the, the Crown, she is a double nominee at the Critics' Choice this year. So huge congrats to her and all the great work that she is doing over the last few years between The Father, between The Favorite, between The Crown. She's all over the place doing incredible work right now. But, but for me, the person that could take this award, I'm going to go with Maria Bakalova. And I think this could be one where... Again, I, I wouldn't put a lot of credence to saying whoever wins in the, on, on the Crick's Choice Night is going to win overall on Oscar night. But I think, again, when we talk about momentum, this is the kind of stuff that these award shows does. It just creates momentum for these uh, actors and actresses and creators to in their continuing effort to get to Oscar night. And so I think for Maria Bakalova, it's going to come down to her and 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 the actress from Minari because they uh, the critics have loved both of them especially when it comes to the critics circles it's been between the two of them just winning one award after another and they they both have been kind of the darlings of award season Really, Maria Bakalova has been the darling of award season. She's just been all over the place doing every single press thing that you could do to campaign for an award. So I could see the critics showering her with this win. I would still take the actress of Minari being my front runner in terms of Oscars, in terms of other awards. But I think just for the critics' choice... I think the critics have loved Maria so much this season that I think she would be my front runner to win this award. She, she there's always a darling for award season, and she's been one of the biggest ones that I've seen in a long, long time. So I think she will win this award because it is the Critics' Choice Award. So I think Maria has a shot of winning this award. So that is who I think will win that award. And now I'm gonna skip over a few. I'm gonna move on now to Best Director. And the nominees are Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, David Fincher for Mank, Spike Lee for Defy Bloods, Regina King for One Night in Miami, Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of Chicago 7, and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. And again, as I've been saying throughout, these are the the, the seven that to me are, are literally my one through seven in no particular order are these individuals for best director, which is kind of crazy because sometimes you get one where it's like, I don't think that they have any shot, but all seven of these people have a shot to getting the best acting nomination. Again, it's like they all went on Gold Derby and said, we're going to copy and paste all these names and we're just going to dump them on there and they're going to be our our nominations for best director. Again, not a bad thing. It's just funny that it just seems like I'm looking at a Gold Derby listing chart right now because all these directors are so deserving. They made the best films really of 2020 and not all of them are going to get a shot to getting a best director because of its five spots. I mean, you look at Chloe Zhao is the perennial frontrunner to get a nomination. Aaron Sorkin as well. They seem to be the one-two locks right now. Fincher could get in, but he could be on the fringe. Uh, Emerald Fennell, I think I would... She's my four spot right now to getting an Oscar nomination. I think that she has gained... A, a Promising a Woman has gained a lot of clout over the last few weeks with Promising a Woman that I think it's 
become more of a, of a not a sure thing, but a, more of a solidifying film and award season than just a fringe one. I, Lee Isaac Chun is somebody that could get into that five spot. And and even though people, I think, love Mank, Fincher might be out. And same thing, unfortunately, with, with Spike Lee. And then you have Regina King, who could be my three. She's my three right now in, in the directing race as of right now. So... It's tough. I mean, best director is such a, a it's always competitive field every single year, but especially this year, there are so many deserving contenders and you want to diversify it up so much that you, it just, you just want to see it do so well. And, and you want to see Regina King get in. You want to see Spike Lee. You want to see Emerald Fennell. You can't have them all, unfortunately, but I, I just think it, it's a tough category. It's really, 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 really tough. And I think looking at it, when I look at a front runner, I would still give it to Chloe Zhao. I think the Critics' Choice loves Nomadland. We've seen it with the Critics' Choice circles, and so I think I would give her the win for Best Director. Yeah, I would give her the, the win for Best Director as of right now. And moving on to Best Original Screenplay, the nominees are Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Emerald Flannell for Promising Young Woman, Jack Fincher for Mank, Eliza Hittman for Never Rarely Always Sometimes. You also have Darius Mortar and Abraham Mortar for Sound of Metal, Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of the Chicago 7. So I think for this one... Uh, I would go between Sound of Metal potentially winning. That would be my upset. But I think Trial of Chicago 7 will win this award for the for best original screenplay. I just think the, the, the critics love Sorkin. He did a great job on Trial of Chicago 7. A uh, dark horse for me would be Emerald Fennell. So my, my upset, my runner-up would be Sound of Metal. My upset would be Promising Young Woman because I think a lot of people loved the the script for Promising Young Woman. I think they love the film overall. I I think with with Mank, with with Fincher, I they love what Fincher did as a director, but I think unfortunately for the script, I think for a lot of people who were on the fence about it, one of the big things was the fact that the, the, the script was a little too inside the baseball for a lot of people. So I think that could really hamper that script moving forward. But I would give my run my front runner status to this category to trial of the Chicago seven. And the final category that I will be talking about right now is best adapted screenplay. The nominees are News of the World, The Father, One Night in Miami, First Cow, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and Nomadland. So my frontrunner for this category would be Nomadland. I just think Nomadland is the film to beat right now, overall in award season. It's just been on a huge tear, and until it's dethroned, that's someone's got to prove me otherwise uh, in terms of me knocking those films down from winning a lot of their respected categories. And, and I think for Mank, getting 12 Critics' Choice nominations. Over the last few weeks, Mank has kind of reasserted itself. After losing a little bit of heat, it's it's really kind of taken a step forward and coming back into the award season conversation. And I think it will be the leader 
of Oscar nominations come March 15th. I think it'll win because I think it'll get a bunch. I already thought it was going to get a bunch of below the line categories, but now over the last few weeks, I could definitely see it getting a Best Picture nomination. Gary Oldman could get a nomination. Uh, Amanda Seyfried is one that could be more on the fringe, but the screenplay... I just think that there's going to be a lot of a lot of nominations that again I think this this thing could come back with a whopping zero wins but nominations I think Mank is going to be the leader in a lot of those categories just because it has great technical savvy to it great music sound a great direction great acting so it has all the tangibles and checks all the boxes for what you would want in an Oscar contender it's just will it translate to wins that is still remains to be seen. But those are the real basic kind of general nominations for the Critics' Choice Awards. What do you guys think about them? Let me know and leave your thoughts. Do you, is there one particular film that you liked? Is there one particular film that you wish got in? Was it Judas and the Black Messiah? Something else? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts. I love to know what you guys think overall about it. And the final thing that I want to talk about on this edition of the Sam Bissell podcast is the synopsis and poster that just came out for the brand new Michael B. Jordan film, Without Remorse. And the synopsis comes in after reading about this. It's based off of a book from Tom Clancy set within the Jack Ryan universe. And this is the synopsis for Without Remorse. The film tells the origin story of John Kelly, a.k.a. John Clark, a U.S. Navy SEAL who uncovers an international conspiracy while seeking justice for the murder of his pregnant wife by Russian soldiers. When Kelly joins forces with fellow SEAL Karen Greer and shadowy CIA agent Robert Ritter, the mission unwittingly exposes a covert plot that threatens to engulf the U.S. and Russia in an all-out war. And Amazon also announced that the release date for this film would be April 30th. And this comes after last year was announced that Paramount Pictures, which produced this film, shot it, financed it, sold this film to Amazon like it's done to a lot of other films in the midst of this pandemic. And it seems like Amazon wants to cash in on this opportunity and sees this as as potentially being a franchise moving forward with Michael B. Jordan, who also today announced that with his production company, signed an overall deal with Amazon to kind of become the center hub for a lot of the films that he's looking to produce and create with his production company. And it's going to be film, television, but also crossing over to a lot of business opportunities with fashion and technology and a lot of innovation with the the streaming site and with the company overall. And so... I think that this is going to be the start of a big partnership for the both of them. And Amazon is looking to capitalize again on this and make it into a major franchise for the streaming service. And it definitely has the the, the clout to do it. I mean, Tom Clancy, when you, when you look at the Jack Ryan series, I, I love the, 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 the television show that's come out. I've loved some of the movies, especially the, the Hunt for Red October and the two Harrison Ford films, Patriot Game and... The uh, Clear and Present Danger is the other one. I think both of those were really, really good, and I love political thrillers. So to kind of have this one with Michael B. Jordan is going to be really cool to see. And I've been looking forward to this one. And to find out that it's coming out on April 30th on a streaming service, I'm really excited and looking forward to seeing a trailer. And the fact that they're looking to turn this into a franchise maybe i mean listen this is all takes place within the tom clancy universe and john clark is a part of the jack ryan franchise in the books so maybe just maybe 
we could be getting a potential Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy universe in a way. Maybe Amazon sees it in that kind of a way. Maybe they just want to keep it standalone, work with Michael B. Jordan, and they'll ask him what they want to do with it. And if that's the vision, then maybe see him team up with Krasinski and Michael B. Jordan. If John Clark seems to be the badass that Krasinski is as Jack Ryan, I would be down for that. And I love the poster that's come out for it. It's just... It's just kind of Michael B. Jordan looking all like tough and, and ready to go into action. Not a whole lot to really dissect from the poster, but I like the uh, first look at, at what I'm getting for this. And again, the cast is really, really good. I mean, you have Jamie Bell playing the CIA agent Rob Ritter, Jody Turner Smith, who coming off of something like Queen and Slim, playing the, the the fellow seal opposite of Michael B. Jordan. That could be a really good chemistry turner between the two of them. You have Coleman Domingo coming off of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That could be really cool. Luke Mitchell, if for people that know Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know him as the, the person he played Luke, I believe. So he is, again, this is a really good cast. I like the story premise. I think, again, if you're into political thrillers, uh, just thrillers in general, this could be something to check out, enjoy. And I'm looking forward to it. And again, Michael B. Jordan, he's one of my favorite actors right now. I I love him in Fruitvale Station. He was a phenomenal in Creed, and he was great in Black Panther. Me personally, I, again, Creed is my favorite performance from him as Adonis in both Creed films so far. So, again, I love Michael B. Jordan. I love what he's done in his career. Just Mercy, he was fantastic in that as well. So, he's definitely on the up and up, and, and somebody that could become kind of like a Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman kind of producer in a way kind of like an more more less like adam sandler but again an actor turned producer who's creating his own content creating opportunities not just for him but for other people opening up more artistic voices both whether it's for minority people like black people latinos or, or for anybody really that wants to have a voice in the arts and create their own projects i think that's what michael b jordan is going to offer with his company so a lot of cool stuff to look forward to i think he's going to really do a great job looking forward to without remorse has a final release date for April 30th on Amazon Prime. Looking forward to it. What do you guys think about Without Remorse hitting the streaming webs on Amazon Prime on April 30th? Does the synopsis intrigue you? Does it not? Are you looking forward to this film? Let me know and leave your thoughts. And guys, without that, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Gold Driven Professionals, Gear Toward Approving Client Relations, Return on Investment, and Customer Acquisition Costs for Independent Businesses and Services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, guys, make sure to check me out on YouTube. You can find me on the Sam Bissell Podcast, where I interview the best of the directors and the actors and actresses that are working on the latest going on in film and television. And also, you can find me on Twitter, at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also, you can find me on Facebook, at Sam Bissell. And also, you can find the podcast at the Sam Bissell Podcast. 
Everyone, once again, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening.